2: Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie.
1: And I'm Elliot.
2: And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender.
1: Okay, quick awards check-in with me (laughs) off the top. Very quick. So basically, if you've listened to the show before, you know that... uh, we're big everything everywhere all at once stands so last weekend they set a record at the SAG awards for winning the most awards in one year at the show which is incredible and then they did the exact same thing last night as of this recording at the independent film or the film independent spirit awards which is also incredible so the sweep is real if this doesn't win everything at the Oscars then what the heck even very happy about it I love watching these people give speeches It just brings me a lot of warmth and happiness to my heart. So for those of you that care about these award updates, as I'm looking in Kylie's eyes, and she does not. (laughs) um, My
2: whole life right now is you.
1: Giving award updates?
2: And making me watch speeches that are only minutely different than the speeches that have been given before.
1: Well, for those of you that do care, (laughs) it's it's a really lovely time to be an Everything Everywhere fan. And uh, yeah, I'm riding the high. I'm loving it. You okay.
2: are writing. <laughs> <Okay>.
1: <laughs> Truly. Yeah, next weekend is Oscar weekend, so uh fingers crossed. Um okay. We watched 6 macaroons this week. Another big week of movies. Um
0: What
2: makes a movie a macaronie?
1: Um I I don't know. I don't know where that came from.
2: <laughs> I, I, like
1: macaronie sounds like the name of a fruit snack.
2: <laughs> I'm like 6 macaroonies. <laughs> You started saying with it, and you've just stuck with it.
1: I, I like it. I like it. You know, first macaroni. Let us know um, on social at baddad.raddad.
2: Have you started calling movies macaronis? <laughs> Have you started telling people I watched three macaronis this week? <laughs> We're trying to make it happen. I went to
1: the movie saw, or went to the theater saw one macaroni.
2: <laughs> I did a double macaroni feature. <laughs> If you watch a -a smackaroonie while you eat macaroni, what does that make you?
1: That's a -a smackaroonie macaroni. (laughs) Nice. Okay. Why would you kick us off with the first film?
2: All right. Uh, We went to the movie theater. Surprising.
0: Uh,
2: Then we saw the 1999 drama slash war movie. What even is that? We don't watch more more
0: war movies. Guns.
2: (laughs) It's called Beau Travail. I was directed and written by Claire Denis Uh, with some scenario support by Jean-Paul Fargeau, and it was based on the story Billy Budd, Sailor.
1: And I could use some scenario support sometimes.
2: By Herman Melville. (laughs) I'm ignoring you.
1: Whoa, Herman Melville? Yeah. Like uh, the... Moby Dick. Moby Dick
2: Dick himself. Moby Richard. It was inspired by Billy Budd, Sailor, the short story that he wrote. I have a feeling they're pretty different, but... then Moby Dick? No, I have a feeling that Billy Bud <laughs> Sailor is <laughs> oh, gotcha. pretty different from Beau Travai.
3: Sorry, go ahead.
2: ADHD is kicking in hot today. <laughs> <laughs> so Beau Travai stars Denis Lavant as Galoup, uh, Michel Subor as Commander Bruno Forrester, and Gregoire Grégo- Colley as Gilles Santan. The synopsis is, focused on an ex-foreign Legion officer, he recalls his once glorious life leading troops in Djibouti. What did you think of Beau Truby?
1: Yeah, I didn't really... There's another one. I, I didn't know really much going into it. I know that Claire Denis... Have you seen one Claire Denis film at this yeah, point?
2: Yeah, Trouble Every Day.
1: Yeah. Um, but I know that she's a renowned filmmaker. So I was looking forward to getting into this one. Had a really great introduction from... I. I the name is escaping me of the...
2: Uh, his name is Thomas Wishloff.
1: But he's uh, one of the two curators of... The Slow Down Sundays program at Metro Cinema?
2: I think originally there were two, and for this iteration, he curated it himself.
1: But uh really well spoken uh, introductions uh, to both of the films that we watched. The other one was Mirror as a part of this series. But yeah, getting into the film, I think like the biggest thing for me is that I did I did like it, but it was um, it was like putting a lens to masculinity mm-hmm. the whole time. And I thought it did it really well. Like it was a real exploration of masculinity, specifically masculinity of the body. Because mm-hmm. I felt like a lot of the spoken, what you could call toxic masculinity elements didn't start kind of trickling in until kind of the latter half of the film. And before that, it was a lot of like close shots of men's bodies and like muscles and how strong they are and that and that their bodies are... Sort of representation of their strength.
2: Well, yeah, because there's actually very little dialogue between characters in the film. Mm-hmm. Most of what you hear for like what would be the script is narration from the character of Galoop. And so that's creating this really interesting what you're seeing on screen is this like external representation of these people. And then what we're hearing is the internal. Mm -hmm. There's this really interesting contrast between the visual focus on the external and the audio focus on the internal.
1: Yeah. No. And, and through that, it it does do this really great job of kind of examining one's values and the values that exist within the decisions that one would make all kind of filtered through this lens of war. Mm -hmm. And, Military. It's,
2: it's interesting because it's not war. Like, they're not at war. They're it's, just training. Yeah,
1: it's just, like, army, military kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, they're, like, out in the desert doing exercises.
1: Yeah. I mean, also, like, com- kind of having watched the inspection more recently, mm-hmm. like, as a com- as a comparison, this is a lot more, like you're saying, like, a lot more sparse mm-hmm. in terms of examining these characters. Not, I feel like there's only one character really. Like th- we don't spend a lot of time with multiple members of this. I don't know. We call it battalion.
2: I am not the person asked military that question to.
1: group of people. <laughs> <laughs> Something too that was kind of interesting. And I did not expect was. Uh, and I, I, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but there were some themes and even some shots that felt like very kind of loose threads uh, to After Sun. So I don't know if maybe Charlotte Wells oh, pulled some influence. If, um, but like there was like some shots like kind of some strobe kind of shots and especially or particularly kind of the last sequence which is incredible.
2: Yeah and that was it was so interesting because like you I knew very little about this film other than um, Claire Denis is well regarded but then this film in particular of her films is quite well regarded. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when Thomas wishloff who curated this um, iteration of slow cinema spoke, he said, I really want to talk about the ending, but I can't because some of you will have not seen the film. Um, and I'm paraphrasing that. He said that much more eloquently than what mm-hmm. I just said. Um, and until that point, I didn't know that the ending was going to be a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and thankfully, even with hearing that ahead of time, the ending still really hits. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't know if there's a deliberate homage. I kind of doubt it.
3: I do too. Um,
2: I think that perhaps the symbolic intention behind both of those is just perhaps part of the subconscious of us as people and it and it fits and it works. I also feel like they're being used in very different ways.
1: Big time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For so. sure. I mean, I did not, not enjoy that I could make those ties because if, if you listened to the show before, you know we love After Sun.
2: I bet you can't guess what woman uh, director does cite this as one of the greatest influences on her work. Tell me. Greta Gerwig.
1: Oh, really? Has mm-hmm. she said anything more to that or just probably? it? <laughs> 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 just don't have it on hand.
2: Uh, I think she she said something to the effect of when she saw Beau Travai, she finally understood what cinema was. Oh, wow. Something to that effect in that, um, yeah, it opened her up to like the meaning of what cinema can be or... Something around that. So even though I, I think Greta Gerwig's work is radically different than Claire Denis's work, I think mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. That um that's a source of inspiration for her.
1: Yeah, that that's so cool. I feel like that moment kind of happens for all of us, and I can't exactly, I can't exactly pinpoint of when maybe that happened for me. But I feel like there is that film that all oh, of man. us see at one point.
2: Two thousand one, A Space Odyssey, for
0: sure.
1: That was it. Yeah.
2: I mean, like, I always loved movies, but I think that was a moment where I was like, holy shit.
1: Well, it's 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 this combination, too, of not only the film, but also the conditions of which you see yeah, the film. We were really lucky for that. But we'll talk about that on a yeah other day. Yeah. I don't I don't know what it was for me.
2: Maybe it hasn't happened yet.
1: I, it, I mean, just because it, this was the first thing that came to mind, like do you
2: dare say the dark night?
1: No, everything everywhere all at once. <laughs>
2: I was like, if it's the dark night, I'm divorcing you.
1: <laughs> like the, when I think about the first time seeing everything everywhere all at once, just like the experience, I'll never forget the experience. A, because we were literally signing documents to buy our house while we were watching it. But seeing that with our friends and experiencing it in a full theater on opening weekend and having that collective experience that we were all in together. It was extremely special. Um, so that, I don't know if that's the one, but that is a one.
2: I don't think there has to be just one. There yeah. are moments where we watch something and it and it opens something up to us both internally, but also in terms of our understanding of why we love cinema and what cinema exists for. Mm-hmm. I am sure everything, everywhere, all at once, which you only saw a year, a ago, year ago is not the, the time. <laughs> but it's not the dark night. <laughs> it's not the time. Please, no, not the dark <laughs> night.
1: Um, what what do you what do you think of the movie?
2: Um, it's I think this is like the name of the game with slow cinema, which is that I think those types of films in particular, actually for me, it's slow cinema, and it's like I don't know if we could call something fast cinema, but like more like action packed things, hmm. um, that are on like the extreme ends of pacing. Yeah, is there a movie like everything, every all at once, is at the other end. Yeah. From slow cinema where it's just like there is so much happening and it's happening so fast that you might be missing things. I think both of those rhythms and pacings of films, it really depends on the day for me if I'm going to be able to engage with it. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, I was in a space where like this film really captivated me Mm -hmm. because it's so much like almost photographic, right? And its sensibility as it just pans over these Bodies and like both human bodies, but then also like the landscape as a body. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be something that on a different day I would be really restless and really like, okay, get to the point. Um, and sometimes when we really want to see something for the first time, like I think I was a little bit more restless when we saw Mirror. Yeah.
1: It's um, not only was that slow, but it was a much longer film. Like I think it was over two hours. No,
2: I, th- oh, maybe.
1: And this was, I think, a tighter, like tighter to 90 minutes.
2: I think you could be wrong about that. Let me check. Well, it's an hour and 47 minutes. Oh,
1: I guess that's the beauty of slow.
2: <laughs> well, I think that's the thing. When you watch a piece of slow cinema, like sometimes an hour and 10 minutes feels like three hours. Yeah. Um, And that's kind of the beauty of it. Like this, it was a day that really, really. I was I was ready to be engaged by it. I don't know that you were as much.
1: Yeah, because this Beau Travai didn't didn't hit as hard as I think it could but could have potentially. Like I thought it was great. I thought it was really well executed. I would be willing to rewatch it again one day. But yeah, it just didn't hit me in that like four and a half out of five, five in the feels kind of way. But I really appreciated and respected what it was, and I enjoyed. Watching it.
2: But you think that it could hit you in that way at a different time in a different place?
1: Potentially, yeah.
2: To quote our niece from later in the episode, maybe. <laughs> yes. But I did, I mean, I think that this is one, yeah, that I don't know that it would be a five out of five for me, but I totally get why it is for some people. Like, why this is some people's, like, favorite movie of all time. Yeah. um, And it's really... Engrossing, if you let yeah. it be, if you can lock into it, I think the way that it kind of like undulates, like in just in waves, mm-hmm. um, if you can get into that rhythm of it, I think it could really sweep a person away.
1: Well, and I think that there's just something, you know, in terms of military, army, war kind of centric films. And you can, like, there's kind of the two ends of the spectrum on it. Like, there's kind of, like, the Saving Private Ryan's and the 1917's and the Dunkirk's of it all. And then there's the more character study digging deeper into it, like Bo um, like The Inspection. And I feel like...
2: You also named films that are actually set during a war that is ongoing versus films that are about training. Those are two very, very, very different things. Yeah. Right? Like Full Metal Jacket would be more in the inspection and Beau Travai, but those are all very different movies.
1: Yeah. And I think on that spectrum, I like it's as I've gotten older and kind of realized more of what my tastes are in movies, I think I do lean more into the character study, digging deeper into the emotional side of things than I am just like, Give me the shoot 'em up. Like, where's the action? I, I want to see all of the war aspects of everything.
2: But I, I feel like you're making a false dichotomy right now because you really like to come and see. This is true. And I think you're you're <laughs> I think you're failing to recognize the difference between a film about the military that isn't set during a war and, and the, a war film like come yeah. and see like Dunkirk, like right yeah um, and then also the difference between a blockbuster war film mm-hmm. and a film like come and see, right So I don't know that we can, yes, they're all about like this is technically considered the genre of war, but this to me is more about the military, yeah as a system, and then I don't even think it's as much about that, but the military as a way to represent masculinity, yeah. Um, and that is just not at all, I think, on the radar for something like 1917.
1: Well, thank you. I have now checked myself, so I will correct myself.
2: <laughs> Are you mad at me?
1: No that that's that's the eloquent that's the eloquent and and uh, the way that I wanted to express that. It, it, how I was feeling the way that you oh put
2: I did that. my teacher thing of you've got a good idea, but let me put it into words that everyone can understand yeah.
1: I don't word good sometimes <laughs>
2: you know what who does? How did it make you feel?
1: It made me feel exhausted and beaten down, much like the characters in the film, like emotionally beaten down, um, but it also made me reflective of my own masculinity and my masculinity as I've grown up and you know, what my kind of perception of what masculinity was when I was younger. And then as I kind of grew into young, a young adult and where I'm at today. And yeah, it's a interesting, tricky battle. But I think it was cool that I was able to reflect on it through this film. How about you?
2: Um, it made me feel tensely captivated.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's a good description. Okay, next movie is my mystery movie pick, one that I have been wanting to watch for some time now. It's the 1989 comedy-slash-drama Do the Right Thing. It was written and directed by Spike Lee, and it stars Spike Lee as Mookie, Danny Aiello as Sal, O.C. Davis as Demare, uh, Ruby Dee as Mother's Sister, Giancarlo Esposito as Buggin' Out, Bill Nunn as Radio Raheem and uh, Rosie Perez as Tina. Oh, also um, Samuel L. Jackson as Mr. Senior Love Daddy <laughs> and um, John Tutoro as Pino. There's a ton more characters in this too. The cast is freaking stacked. Yeah, Martin Lawrence's
2: first <sighs> feature film.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Like
2: there's, yeah, it's a huge cast.
1: Um, yeah, it's stacked. It's sick. Go to Wiki. Yeah. Um, synopsis on the hottest day of the year on a street in the Bedford uh stive, Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn, everyone's hate and bigotry smolders and builds until it explodes into violence. Ooh. All right. First time watch for both of us. What do you think of Do the Right Thing?
2: So this is also something that I've wanted to watch for a while. Um, and all I really knew of it was the poster.
0: It mm-hmm.
3: like looks
2: pretty like '80s, almost like French Prince of Bel Air, like mm-hmm. just fun, funky,
1: like kind of graffiti font. <laughs> yeah, kinda, yeah.
2: Um, I and I really didn't know much about it, and I had never seen a Spike Lee movie until this.
1: I would only seen, I think, I would only seen like one. I and think some I saw. basketball. He movie. got game. That's it. I watched it a ton when I played basketball. Uh,
2: But I did... What I know of Spike Lee has been actually really tied, interestingly, to awards season. Um, So I read a lot of his thoughts about... Django Unchained. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I talk to my students about criticisms of that film, I often encourage them to read... Spike Lee has said about it. Hmm. Um, There's also a really great article about Django Unchained uh, from Jesse Williams, who played Dr. Jackson Avery (laughs) (laughs) on Grey's Anatomy, that I often encourage them to go and read. Um, I kind of give them the quick soundbite, and then I say, you know, like, read the words of a person of color. Don't listen to me. Um, And then also when Spike Lee, I believe, walked out of the awards when Green Book won best picture, I think he stood up and walked out if I am remembering correctly. I think that's right. And so I've kind of just been like, you go Spike Lee. <laughs> like, I don't really I don't really know you but I want to watch your movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was really excited when I saw that you picked this. But I just, yeah, didn't know anything about it. Um, really a lot of this film is nothing happens but the vibes which I could see a lot of people not totally loving. Mm-hmm. Especially if you don't know that. That is exactly my kind of thing. Yeah. I love a nothing happens but the vibes and I love the, the older I get, the more I actually care about setting Mm. and whether settings are convincing or not. We're rewatching Friends right now, um, which is also set in New York and it is just so not New York. Yeah. It's just so clearly not New York. It doesn't even feel like New York, um, which is one of the few places I've been and I've been more than once. This feels like New York. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like a microcosm of New York. It feels yeah. like a portion of New York. And you can just feel Spike Lee's love and frustration for this neighborhood mm-hmm. and the people in it. Um, which is like the ultimate, nothing happens but the vibes is like when the people in the place, we are getting a feel for the everyday and the complicated nuance of these people in places by just watching a day unfold.
1: Yeah. I, I think you put that really, really well. Cause yeah, I feel like this movie is just steeped in community and the people that make up this community, just, just kind of how they dip in and out of each other's lives over the course of a day. Um, and how, even though they may, have different backgrounds or have different viewpoints or whatever it may be. There, there's always some sort of connecting thread between all of them, whether it be the neighborhood, whether it be the fact that it is like blistering hot on this particular day. It, it And it, and it kind of, t- it doesn't, it touches on those connections without just hyper focusing on, on every single one of them.
2: And it also, like it's one of Spike Lee's earlier films and you can see that there's like, a lot of filmmaking style within it like it mm-hmm. isn't as much as it is and nothing happens but the vibes it's not like art house realism like there's these super um cinematic's not the right word but like these fast close-ups on people that don't feel like we're just watching something happen in front of us
1: mm-hmm. and
2: there's just a real purpose behind how he moves between the different modes of filmmaking within it, which is really interesting, yeah I like desperately want to teach this film, but I know I would never be allowed to um because I think there's so much going on, both with like filmmaking technique and then also with like the thematics of the of the film and we've been in New York on a really hot stretch.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, when you- he
2: uses that heat, like the New York City heat very effectively Mm -hmm. both at first to just be like setting but then eventually to become something much more symbolic
1: yeah we're watching this in february in canada (laughs) when it is still cold 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 cold. still snowing but you feel the heat and the oppressive heat that is talked about and exists in this film And and yeah you just feel it i just wanted to also just um Add on to what you were mentioning about the the filmmaking, like it is like this very kinetic, mm. exciting experience. Like this movie is, even though some of the themes are tough, it is fun to watch because each shot is so compelling.
2: Yeah, like even though it is, like so, nothing happens, but the vibes, which is like not a real like film movement <laughs> or anything, it's a list on Letterboxd that I really like. <laughs> it's a good name um, though. Often can, often those movies are slow. Mm-hmm. And this, I mean, a person might describe this perhaps as meandering, but we it's often like we're just, we're, we're following one character walking, and then in the midst of them walking somewhere, we come across another character and we like whip pan over to them and start following them instead. And we just kind of keep doing that and in a lot of ways. I was thinking this as we were watching this. This movie is like the antithesis of In the Heights. Mm, yeah, like that movie wants to be like sunshines, lollipops, rainbows, mm-hmm. New York. Yeah, yeah, um, but like kind of a similar setting, um, even in, in terms of like heat
0: and
2: mm-hmm. uh, looking at like a, a neighborhood in New York and how it, uh, the people interact on it. Um, I like this better.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, this establishes. Like we've said a few times, like by taking these meandering shots of following one, char- one character from one place in the neighborhood to another, it just puts you in there and it establishes the setting and the characters and the place and you feel like you're a part of the community as the viewer, which is such a nice, fun, and immersive experience that you know has emotional ramifications by the end of the film
2: especially because if a person is watching this feeling like they are part of this community the film would ask what part
3: yeah
2: right and there's kind of space for that challenging reflection Mm -hmm. for anyone who's watching um because it was in the synopsis this the building until exploding into violence we won't get into the specifics of that But I guess this film was really, white critics said that it was going to incite violence. Mm. And Spike Lee said, do we think that after white people watch The Terminator, they're going to be violent? Because if you don't think that, then you can't think this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess Lee, to this day, has praised Roger, Roger Ebert as being one of the few white critics who understood the film. I understood what the film was trying to do, but this film wasn't as, um, I think, ubiquitously praised as it is now, perhaps.
0: Mm.
2: One thing that I just think is freaking amazing, so the 1990 Oscars, just to bring it back to your favorite mm. topic, mm. awards, um, this was not nominated for Best Picture.
1: Friggin' error.
2: Yep. But Kim Basinger was the um, announcer what would you call it presenter presenter for the best picture award in 1990 and she broke from the teleprompter and said this uh quote we've got five great films here and they're great for one reason because they tell the truth but there is one film missing from this list that deserves to be on it because ironically it might tell the biggest truth of all and that's do the right thing oh damn Oh! (laughs) Controversial apparently, I can imagine so. That's awesome Um, though. And pretty recently in 2019 in a podcast interview Spike Lee thanked her for saying that. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like you've often talked about how you would like for the best picture winner to be reflective of that moment in time. Mm-hmm. Um and I was recently looking back at some of the best picture winners and being like seriously <laughs> like what do these have to say about anything and I feel like if this had been best picture winner it says a lot about 1989 1990 mm-hmm. um and it'd be nice if we started moving in that direction but I don't have hope hence why I'm not as into awards season as you are um what did what what are some thoughts you have about this movie
1: Um I I mean I Enjoyed, you know, adding to the layering of the um, the characterizations. Like, I just love throughout the course of this day the different conversations that we get into. And some of them are, like it, it just kind of ranges from ridiculous, kind of inane conversations between people to heavy and complicated conversations yeah. between people. And both are handled really, really well.
2: That's something that I I'm really a sucker for in any realm of my life, whether it's art or real life, is contrast that isn't resolved. Mm-hmm. I mean, hence bad dad, rad dad, right? <laughs> um, and this film just deals in that contrast and does not allow a resolution. So, like, heat and water, like fire and water, um, love and hate, the mundane and the like intensely important and then it really you know it there's a focus from the first moment of the film after their little like 1980s boxing dance intro oh
1: fuck the intro <laughs> slaps it's, it's pretty so cool. good
2: but once the film officially starts from the beginning to the end there's this through line focusing on Martin Luther King Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X mm-hmm. right and so there's just this these Ideas that are bumping up against each other both through the setting in terms of like people trying to use fans to cool themselves and fire hydrants to, you know, make turn into a sprinkler um, in this like oppressive heat. Um, Then you've got like characters that contrast each other. You've got like the two brothers Mm -hmm. who are contrasts of each other. But this film doesn't take a side Mm -hmm. and it doesn't say that there's like one or the other. That these two things exist and they constantly bump up against each other and that is a reality mm-hmm. and i just love that and i think it comes through in like these moments that are just like the corner store men yeah. <laughs> talking which was all improvised by the way oh really <laughs> it's just so Great. fun um to like some of these really intense arguments that people are having about really important things and we're kind of weaving between those two different modes of storytelling
1: yeah, like even in some of these conversations where you think that the conversation starts off kind of volatile and vicious, by the end, it's it, there's this recognition of being like, hey, you're all you're all right. <laughs> like it can, it, it can so easily take a turn by, by what somebody says.
2: I mean, and even that contrast in comedy slash drama, like the genre, this is truly comedy slash drama. I thought some parts of this film are some of the funniest things I've ever seen. Yeah. But when it goes drama, it's like a gut punch.
1: Well, and I think the embodiment of a a singular character where they both made me... They they kind of whiplashed me from emotions was bugging out. Yeah. Because he made me laugh a lot, but also incites some of the biggest stuff that happens in this movie.
2: Yeah. Moff Gideon himself.
1: (laughs) The fact that it's Giancarlo Esposito who was Gus Fring in Breaking Bad... (laughs) who is like one of the most terrifying villains ever <laughs> was wild. And he's
2: such a baby. Like they're all such babies. Everyone's in it. a baby in this. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, but yeah. And I really, I really enjoyed Spike Lee as Mookie. I, I, I like the character Mookie because he's so complicated and complex, even especially by the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Cause I mean, as the title do the right thing, it doesn't wrap it in a bow of like, this was the right thing to do by the end. It, yeah. it poses that question to the viewer. Yeah. Of, what is the right thing? Is there a right thing?
2: But it's also, I mean, because the title isn't. The title is "Do the Right Thing."
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's a statement.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I see it as like the question. It immediately is like, "What is the right thing?"
2: But I don't think that Spike Lee intended that because he has said that it's only white audiences who ask that. Yeah. He <laughs> said no. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> no black. Uh, no black audience member. Has, or any black person who has seen the film, he says has ever asked him what was the right thing in the movie. And I think that's what the beautiful thing about this film is, is that there is no one right thing. Like, do the right thing is complicated and contradictory. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think he especially shows that through Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X that, like, both of them were doing the right thing. Even mm-hmm. if sometimes they were doing very different things, sometimes they were doing very similar things, right? And so it's just this statement: "Do the right thing."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I like, I like that. I like, well, I mean, I like that. I'm just falling into like white person TM.
2: <laughs> what is the right thing? I think he thinks that like there is no answer to that.
1: Well, and that's the thing is, and I think that that is one of the beauties of this film is that yeah, as white person TM, I asked that question, what knowing well that there isn't one answer mm-hmm. and that it is complex, and that it is complicated
2: and contradictory. <sighs> yeah. Cause the right thing can be the wrong thing at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think this film refuses to let there be an easy answer to that. And Spike Lee says like asking that question is, is to misunderstand the film. Mm-hmm. Essentially I'm putting like my own interpretation of kind of the things I've heard him say, um, To take it in a slightly different direction and not to uh, compare our relationship to the Obamas, but to compare our relationship to the Obamas. Um, Our first official date, we had two movies we were considering seeing, Mm -hmm. Paranormal Activity and The Fourth Kind, and I chose The Fourth Kind, and that was a mistake. On the Obamas' first date ever, they had two movies they were considering seeing, Mm -hmm. either Do the Right Thing or Driving Miss Daisy. (sighs) And they went to Do the Right Thing.
3: Oh, so they made the right they choice. They made the right choice. They did the right yeah, thing. <laughs> they did the right thing.
2: And I guess they have joked about if they had seen Driving Miss Daisy, they wouldn't be a couple still. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so oh. I love that. Uh, I think that's awesome. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that, was, uh, that was the right choice. God.
2: Yeah. The, in, in the question of sometimes you, there is an easy answer for do the right thing between do the right thing and Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> do the right thing. Um, oh. Yeah.
1: yeah Uh, and you know even though spike lee said what he said and i asked the question that that is not the question he wanted you to ask by the end of the film i still feel like i got so much from this film i felt like it was such an incredible and powerful experience that i have not experienced in many films
2: yeah this is one of the best films i've ever seen
1: yeah hands down like immediately we finished it and just kind of sat in our feelings and we're like, is this on Criterion? Because it should be. NFA's yeah, I said, if this isn't
2: on Criterion, Criterion is racist. And then you were like, okay, it is on Criterion. And <laughs> I said, good.
1: Um, and yeah, this at the end of this, it just made me want to watch more Spike Lee films.
2: Yeah, um, I'm really, I can't believe it took this long for me to start. I have a lot of movies of his I've, I've wanted to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm like, just watch them all. Yeah. All in a row.
1: I'm glad that this was the one to kick, to kick that off.
2: I agree. Because yeah, yeah. I think it'll be interesting to see how these themes weave into the rest of his catalog.
1: Yeah, I agree. How did it make you feel?
2: It made me feel the complex contradictions of love and
1: hate. I love that. Um, it made me feel in awe from beginning to end. What an incredible movie. Highly recommend to all of you listening.
2: Yeah, if you haven't seen it, holy moly, go see it. Watch it. Seek I just it out. Don't go see it, but find a way to see it. Um, and if you have seen it before, what a time for a rewatch.
1: If you're trying to decide between this and Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs>
2: Definitely choose Probably this. watch Do the this. right thing yeah. and choose Do the Right Thing.
1: Even if you're trying to decide between Paranormal Activity and The Fourth Kind, watch Do the Right Thing. <laughs> all right.
2: It was my mystery movie pick next, and right. I picked. The, Got a lot of them in this week. We did. Love it. I picked the 1983 horror sci fi thriller, Videodrome. It was directed and written by Canada body horror king himself, David Cronenberg. And it stars the pee pee poo poo, James Woods, which we'll talk about later, as Max Wren. Uh, Debbie Harry one Blondie herself as Nikki Brand. Sonia Smits as Bianca Oblivion. So good. (laughs) And Peter Dvorsky as Harlan. The synopsis, a programmer at a TV station that specializes in adult entertainment searches for the producers of a dangerous and bizarre broadcast. What did you think of Videodrome?
1: Okay, let's acknowledge the pee-pee-poo-poo right out of the gate, that James Woods is a trash person who got owned by Dictionary.com on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) So James Woods... Has said some real gross things. He's like pee pee poo poo to the extreme. He wants to go hang out with that nasty who wrote Harry Potter. Like they're just gonna go revel in their digging in their heels together. Um, but he said some pee pee poo poo things about using uh, they as a singular yeah. pronoun, and he was like going on and on about like I'm not gonna read his tweet because he doesn't deserve Scroll that. On. But he said some. St- But you can predict that a person would say to try and make an argument that they is um, grammatically not a singular pronoun. And Dictionary.com tweeted back at him and said, quote, they has been used as a singular pronoun since the 1300s among its best known users in history, Chaucer, Shakespeare, and Jane Austen.
1: (laughs) Fuck yeah, (laughs) Dictionary.com. Oh, man.
2: So, yeah. um, I didn't know that he was such a pee-pee-poo-poo when we watched video and I found that out after and I was like, that stinks.
1: Yeah, it really stinks. But um important to acknowledge this stuff and love that dictionary.com won't stand for any of that shit.
2: Yeah, let's all be like dictionary dot com. <laughs> yes.
1: Um so that said though, um I've always kind of regarded this having not seen it before, but I still regarded it as kind of a like staple Cronenberg. Yeah. And this was kind of what I expect from a David Cronenberg movie, in terms of it's giving me body horror and it's giving me really weird sci-fi plots. Shit. Yeah. And I was more compelled in this than the previous two Cronenberg movies we watched in that uh, *Crimes of the Future* and uh, *Scanners*. Right. Yes. I, I, I was more, I was more interested in what the storyline was and there was more body horror elements that were kind of hooking me a little bit more
2: when he does the body horror. I am so all in. Yeah. And I, you know, I've been reflecting on this because we didn't really start watching his movies until this last year and a bit. Mm-hmm. And I really think if I had been watching them when I was a teenager that I would have been obsessed. Yeah. Like if this was some of my early horror introduction, I think I would have I think it would have been indelibly inked in me. Mm. Like, you know? And I've I've kind of been having some conversations with some folks on Letterboxd about um kind of when we talked like we talked with our friend Lori about Suspiria and even though Suspiria is one of her favorite movies of all time and if you've listened to her on the show then you know that she's a horror expert. Um that it took a couple viewings to really hit. I'm, I'm hearing from some people that that kind of can be similar with Cronenberg, that like it takes a second or a third viewing, which I know not everybody wants to do. Like some people would say if it can't get me the first time, then to hell with it. Mm-hmm. But I'm interested in coming back to these and seeing what they do on a second or third viewing because I haven't watched yeah. any Cronenberg film twice.
3: Yeah.
1: I'm, at, And of the three films that I've mentioned, including Videodrome, I am most curious to revisit uh, Crimes of the Future.
2: Oh, really? I think so. Out of all three,
1: yeah. Because ah. after talking with Laurie about it, and then having seen Videodrome and like done a little bit of reflecting, I feel like I'm I'm more interested in revisiting that than I am revisiting um, Scanners.
2: I also feel like his films benefit f- or would benefit if I watched them again. For me, from like having talked about them with other people and. You know, read some things about them and then taking that in with me as I watch. The first time it's very visceral experience because he he does do body horror so well. Mm -hmm. Like when this one, Icky, did you love it?
1: Oh, I loved it. We I think after every Icky sequence, we looked at each other and we're like,
2: (laughs) (laughs) sick. (laughs) Like it's pretty, it's pretty great. I um I made this kind of realization as I was watching this one, having in the last year watched scanners. And Crimes of the Future and not being like immediately wowed by David Cronenberg in the way that some people are. I haven't been like, oh, I hated that. But I haven't. I've kind of been like, oh, I thought I was going to love it. Mm -hmm. And I liked it.
1: Well, we set ourselves up on a really high bar with The Fly. Fly.
2: I loved The Fly. And then I was like, oh, man, why haven't I been watching David Cronenberg my whole life? Mm -hmm. Um, But his movies, including in The Fly, are very industrial. Like the settings are yeah. very industrial. They're very like, and all of a sudden, I'm in an abandoned shipyard. Mm-hmm. Everything's very concrete, not concrete. <laughs> I said that weird. Not concrete is in like not abstract, but like it's <laughs> concrete. Yeah, it's gray.
1: Yeah, it's like there's a. There's it's a, dusty. There's a there's like a cold, dirty coldness to the vibe.
2: Yeah, and it it, it distances me in a sense. I think I need to get a lock on what's with the industrial revolution of it. Mm. This is not a revolution. (laughs) Just the (laughs) industrial setting of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I need to have my own industrial revolution to understand David Cronenberg's um, consistent use of that. It seems so at odds with how much of his films are about technology. Mm. And that must be on purpose.
0: It's
2: very... um, juxtaposed
1: yeah especially Videodrome it it's it kind of speaks to if not directly the dangers of technology and sometimes in a very literal way in a very gross literal way <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. well I mean so this film um, per, per the synopsis about like there's this broadcast that he's trying to get a lock on and I've talked about this on the show before but that kind of stuff just gets under my skin Mm -hmm. this idea of a you're you're, when you're on a device or on a website or on anything where like you don't have total control of it like I even it's so illogical but my mom dropped off because she's moving she dropped off these VHSs of like me having done like video stuff with my friends as a kid. But then also there's like taped interviews with celebrities I had crushes on <laughs> it's classic. And I have this illogical fear of watching them because like, what if they got taped over with something I don't want to see?
3: Oh yeah.
2: Right. Like there's just this, I don't know. There's something about that or like, what if you're watching, what if you, I used to be really afraid of this too, with like, what if you download something on LimeWire and when you go to click on it, it's not what it was supposed to be.
1: Is Do you think part of that fear is rooted in the whole seven days watching the videotape from The Ring? <laughs> no,
2: I don't. Because <laughs> I, I felt like that well before I saw The Ring. Okay, just checking. There's just something, and I feel like it doesn't get under your skin nearly as much, but with this, when it's a type of technology that could have been written over or that a signal could interfere and you could end up seeing something you didn't intend to see. Mm-hmm it freaks the hell out of me. So this was quite, that part of the film really got under my skin too. Mm -hmm. And then and then that like, and I saw this thing that I didn't intend to see and I'm captivated by it. Yeah. It's almost that call of the void, right? If I saw Mm -hmm. it and now it's got me. Um, And this is really interesting because I guess that this concept for Videodrome came from Cronenberg having a very similar fear as me.
3: Oh, interesting. So
2: when he was a kid in Canada, Mm -hmm. our little Canadian darling, he would be watching uh, television late at night and after the stations in Toronto went off the air, it would pick up American television signals in Buffalo, New York. um, And he worried that it might show him something disturbing that wasn't meant for the public. Like he had this irrational fear and yet at the same time, a fascination with that mm-hmm. um, so he has said that he quote has always been interested in dark things and other people's fascinations with dark things plus the idea of people locking themselves in a room and turning a key on a television set so they can watch something extremely dark and by doing that allowing themselves to explore their fascinations mm. so interesting because i think there's that part yeah. of the fear too like what if i saw something i didn't want to see and then it did something to me that i didn't expect Hmm. Right.
1: Yeah. It. It. It is. It is scary, and I feel like that's kind of what makes things like <laughs> things it makes things like Ghost Watch really yes, scary. Yes. Because it's it's this seemingly normal broadcast, but then all of a sudden, scary stuff starts happening, and you don't know what you're going to see next, and it feels real and unscripted. And you're like, this is not what I signed up for.
2: Yeah, and this like um proliferation of analog horror. Yeah. Um, really has that vibe with it. Um, I had a student recommend me the YouTube series, the Mandela Catalog, mm-hmm. and we watched some of it. And I was like, Ugh. like at one point, you looked at me and you said, "No," <laughs> <laughs> like if, there's something about it that gets under that part.
1: Yeah, of and, our psyche, and that's kind of what's happening right now with like films like Skinamarink. Yeah. Um. Or the out, the Outwaters.
2: Yeah. Where even though we know their films, the way that they are filmed. Like Videodrome, like like the Videodrome footage in Videodrome, there's a part where you're like, what if this shows me something I don't want to see? Mm-hmm. And when a filmmaker does that well, we can suspend our disbelief that this was pre-decided and recorded and edited to show us in a particular way. And we can feel like we are accidentally watching the broadcast we shouldn't be watching and that something could happen at any moment.
1: Yeah. And and I feel like, too, there's I was just thinking there's that extra layer of kind of horror to it of when if something were to come up on our screen, typically we'd be at home. So it's also this kind of invasion of this this safe place where, you know, you want to believe that you are safe and that nothing can hurt you and you won't see things that'll make you upset.
2: And I think that's what David Cronenberg does so well is like the seepage of boundaries.
1: Wow, I fucking love that—the <laughs> <laughs> seepage of boundaries. That no, that's 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 exactly it.
2: <laughs> Thanks. You like my words today? Good words. <laughs> good words. Um, because yeah, it is. It's icky. And then he, but then he asks you, "What if that were to happen? What if this dark thing were to seep into your safe space, and then you ended up loving it?"
1: That that is the that is the fear because then you it's this whole confrontation with yourself yeah of who am I is there something wrong with me for liking this why do I like this yeah
2: so the there's a film critic or film analyzer that's not the right word my good words are gone uh, <laughs> named Tim Lucas and he has said this film is quote. Dealing with the impression of a sprawling technological world on our human senses, the fascination and horror of sex and violence and the boundaries of reality and consciousness. Mm. And I do think in having this conversation even right now, I'm like, I think I'd love this even more on a on a rewatch. Yeah. Um, Andy Warhol called it the clockwork orange of the 1980s.
0: Mm. And I
2: think we're still reckoning with what screens do to us. Mm -hmm. And what like access to unfettered content does to us. I think films like We're All Going to the World's Fair, even 8th Grade in a different genre are exploring that in really interesting ways. Um, And one of my favorite things I read about this, which like totally made sense to me is that the character of Brian Oblivion was meant to be a representation of Marshall McLuhan. Do you know who he is? Mm -mm. So he, I think you'll know this. He's a very famous um, theorist in Canadian academia who talked about how the medium is the message. Right. Um, And he was talking about like television and the shift from radio to television and print to television and that kind of stuff. Um, and I guess he was a teacher, a professor at the university of Toronto when David Cronenberg was going to the university of Toronto. And I just love that. That's such a specifically Canadian <laughs> <laughs> reference. Um, but I've studied some Marshall McLuhan stuff. It's hard to take anything in uh, television and film studies in university and not encounter him in Canada. Hmm. And I definitely saw that in there.
1: Yeah. I've had a lot of conversations recently with some people that I work with. And this is not a hot take at all, but just, just having a lot of thoughts and what it must do to us as humans now that we have just this kind of unfettered access to the internet at all times in the palms of our hands and we can scroll through an Instagram feed and see cute cat or puppy videos or photos and then with one swipe of your thumb you're now looking at some of the most de- devastating stuff in the world that's going on that's hurting people or people are dying or being being hurt in some way and then you go back to like a TikTok of somebody skateboarding into a wall mm-hmm. and just that emotional and visual whiplash and how prolonged exposure to that is going to affect us in the long run, especially younger people who are getting smartphones and access to the internet at such a young age now. Mm -hmm. I mean, like even we were talking yesterday on like a smaller scale is that they've taken, we used to have to take computer classes growing up to learn how to use and navigate computers and learn how to type. They've taken that out of curriculums now because they just make the assumption that because kids are on their phones all the time and have laptops that they just understand everything about it, but that's not reality. So it's kind of scary.
2: how you stumble on the dark web. Ugh.
1: Yeah, and like that's just it. Like at it's, four years old, it's now imploring people to do so much more self-discovery on the internet and using computers and using devices at younger ages. It's it's just it, it kind of melts my brain and makes me sad. There's parts of it that make me. Happy because the internet could be a really great place but it can also just be a cesspool i don't it's know scary, yeah. the screens and technology oh.
2: and cronenberg was
1: right on the telling money
2: us back then <laughs> um i have one quick hard shift in conversation yeah do you know that cronenberg was offered return of the jedi i
1: i, I feel like i heard that at some point but that that is wild
2: <laughs> can you imagine
1: I feel like it would have been pretty sick it, in like a like sick.
2: Well, he probably I, I imagine he would have been heavily
1: dictated Edited. to. Yeah.
2: Um, he he turned it down uh, because he will not do anything that isn't original content. Like he will only work on his own material.
1: I feel like it would have been like a David Lynch Dune thing.
2: <laughs> it wouldn't work. Yeah. But that's wild to me that anyone would be like David Cronenberg. You want to do a Star Wars movie? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Make those Jawas real mucusy. like <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. Oh man,
2: which which movie has the Tauntaun in it?
1: Empire Strikes Back. Like, oh okay. Like well, he could have done some. Yeah, he could have gone heavy with the body horror of like yeah, the like the one with the Ewoks and with Luke confronting Vader and stuff. Like, I feel like there could have been some.
2: I want to see it. I want to take a step into the multiverse. The universe where David Cronenberg did make Return of the Jedi. hmm And I wonder what that would have done to the trajectory of Star Wars as a whole.
1: hmm Oh, man. Because, like, Return of the Jedi is also the one that kicks off, like, the Mandalorian and stuff.
2: Exactly. Like, would it have... If Cronenberg had done Return of the Jedi, would Star Wars have stopped there?
1: Yeah. Been like, what or would fuck? it
2: have just gone in a totally different direction would star wars be more horror <laughs> i don't know so it's very interesting to think about it, um
1: yeah there is a universe where star wars is a horror series
2: <laughs> <laughs> due to david Cronenberg. that's sick how did video drone make you feel
1: um it made me feel icked but also quite compelled and after this conversation i agree like i i, I want to revisit this Um. And kind of take the advice of what some people have said about Cronenberg films, and revisiting them and letting them kind of sink in a little bit deeper on subsequent watches. Yeah, how about you?
2: Interesting to what you're saying. Like I, what I initially said for how I how it made me feel, it is true to how it made me feel then. This conversation, I'm feeling differently now. Mm-hmm. But after watching Videodrome for the first time, I did feel like. Glad to check another Cronenberg off the list. I'd like to watch them all. Yeah. Um, Even if it didn't totally click the first watch. Yeah. I was like, I'm glad that I've seen it and I'm ready to move on. But after talking about it, I'm like, oh, there was more. It did more to me than I thought it did. Mm-hmm. Sticks with you, kind of swirls around. So I'm, I'm feeling excited to see how I interact with it differently on a rewatch.
1: So I wanted to ask, and you kind of answered it, but how have four films in now how are you feeling about Cronenberg at this point
2: I'm still interested but I'm not obsessed
1: yeah I, I'm the same way like I I felt like the way you were describing had we dis- had we discovered him and his films at a younger age where I feel like we've just been all in and been like oh it's everything he makes is amazing now I'm just I'm I've been kind of let down, but I am forgiving of that.
2: But I also, prior to watching The Fly, the only Cronenberg films that I ever seen were A History of Violence and Eastern Promises, which to my knowledge are slightly different mm-hmm. focus. And I have no memory of them other than this the scene on the stairs. And like I was just very disturbed by Vigo Mortensen's butt. <laughs> I have a problem. I get I don't want to see your butt. I don't like looking at people's butts. Um <laughs> That's
1: okay. <laughs>
2: I know. It just like it just like that's all I can remember from it. And it, it really bothered me.
1: If it helps, that's all I remember too. I've only seen <laughs> I've always seen History of Violence of those two ones you mentioned. And yeah, I just remember butt on the stairs. But I
2: really don't I really don't remember the movies. I'm sure if we watch them again, some stuff would start to come back to me. I think my sisters were watching them. And then I had to watch M. Butterfly for a university class. And um, we were critiquing it mm-hmm. for like it's Orientalism. um. And it's uh, BD Wong plays like M Butterfly, and I don't know, mm. it's for a gender studies class, I can't remember super well. But it seems like those three films are actually very different from what he's typically made. And I'm also curious how having those be the films I watched before I started getting into like Scanners and Videodrome <laughs> and The Fly how that shaped my interactions with him emotionally as a director in his filmography but Mm -hmm. i'm excited to try and challenge some of those maybe like subconscious Mm -hmm. thought processes that i've had it was just like vigo mortensen's butt bothered me and now i don't like david cronenberg
1: (laughs) (laughs) no i hear you i like well it hasn't completely turned me into an uh, unabashed fan i'm still very open yeah to all the cronenberg experiences um. Okay, let's move to the next film. This is my mystery movie pick? Uh, I chose the twenty twenty drama The Father, or the Faja if uh, you are in an Austin Powers movie,
2: or La Père, if you're thinking of the stage play.
1: Ah, yes. Um, it's directed by Florian Zeller. It was also the screenplay was also written by Florian Zeller and uh, Christopher Hampton. It stars Anthony Hopkins as Anthony. Uh Olivia Coleman as Anne, Mark Gaddis as the man, Olivia Williams as the woman, Imogen Poots, great name, as Laura, and Rufus Sewell as Paul. Synopsis is a man refuses all assistance from his daughter as he ages. As he tries to make sense of his changing circumstances, he begins to doubt his loved ones, his own mind, and even the fabric of his reality. Whoa. What do you think of the faja?
2: It was horrifying.
1: I felt like uh, while we were watching it, I felt like a very, I felt a lot of heaviness from your side of the couch.
0: <laughs> what, what
1: emotional you, heaviness. You
2: didn't feel that emotional heaviness?
1: I did, but I felt like it was really affecting you throughout the whole film. I don't know if it was just the night that we watched it, but I, I just, I felt like it was really hitting you.
2: Oh, well, yeah, maybe. I don't know. There's been like some heavy stuff going on in life lately and Mhm. I mean, I have a 98 year old grandpa who is, his brain's pretty good, but mm-hmm. he's still he's 98 um, and he's my only living grandparent. I don't know. I guess I've just dealt with a lot of like, I think I've been more in the muck of like losing my grandparents than you have. Mm-hmm. Um, like with the loss of both of my dad's parents, and then my mom's mom died very suddenly of a stroke, brain aneurysm when I was six
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and yeah I don't know it's just and, and I you know my mom is the only child and she's taking care of her dad who's two to two and a half hour drive away and so you know sometimes any of us kids will go and accompany her because it's a long drive and it's just I don't know I think I I, I witnessed my mom being a care her carer for her dad mm-hmm. and I think because I have anxiety um, my brain starts worrying about us. Mm-hmm. If the world doesn't end, if we're thankful enough to have to not all die in the climate wars within the next like twenty twenty five years, and we manage to make it to this age, if this happens to us, who's taking care of us? I think I like I start feeling worried about that.
1: Yeah. Well, and we've kind of talked on the show too, like the idea of aging and getting older is something you don't really like to talk about too much.
2: Yeah, and I don't know why, because like I objectively know that aging is a privilege, but like yeah, it's it's like this movie is a horror movie to me mm-hmm. this is like my worst fear mm-hmm. is to lose my um i don't care about what i look like i worry about what happens to my brain
1: mm. i think that's well thank you for sharing all that stuff <laughs> that was,
2: yeah, you made me you made me do all this heavy stuff
1: but uh, but i that's that's what i felt coming off of you while we we're watching it and i didn't want to dig into that immediately after the film because i just kind of i felt that from you but I think uh, like that definitely gives me a better understanding of what you were kind of thinking. And I can see I can totally see all of what you were feeling in in the film and why you would be feeling that way. Yeah, this was a very this was a very affecting experience overall. I mean, I think kind of labeling it a horror film is accurate because I felt it very disor, It was very disorienting. Yeah, I don't, in a scary way.
2: I don't know if you said the genres.
1: I I did. I just said drama.
2: Oh, so on IMDb, it's listed as a drama slash mystery. Oh, really? Which is interesting. Mm. Because I get that.
1: Yeah. Well, (laughs) we looked at each other a few times throughout the movie and we're like, what the
2: fuck? What is happening? And I mean, I think if if you aren't going into this movie totally not having heard of it at all, then you have an understanding of what the film's about. And even with that understanding, it was still so disorienting mm-hmm. and really challenging.
1: Yeah. And in, in a real way. Like there's yeah. there was a, a real life quality to this. And I, I wanted to mention too, I did I really didn't expect that because much like we talked about the way we talked about La La Land in our last episode, this was another one of those films where I felt there was just this little inkling of feeling pee pee poo poo about it because it, like, the Oscars were weird that, that year. And Anthony Hopkins won Best Actor over Chadwick Bozeman winning a posthumous Oscar, and they saved that award till last.
2: That was the weird part of it, right? Yeah. Was that they typically Best Pictures last, and yet they moved Best actor to last which is very strange which made everyone believe Chadwick Boseman was going to win. They
1: wanted to end on a moment.
2: Yeah and then Anthony Hopkins won and he wasn't there and he wasn't there because they wouldn't let him do a um digital yeah, appearance they- and because he's older and in Europe and it was COVID he didn't feel it was safe to come. Fair. Um, like and it just... The whole thing was really stinky from the side of the Oscars. Hence, why I'm not as into awards season as you are.
1: <laughs> I'm just into it when there's stuff that I really, really. I love. know, I know you are. <laughs>
2: um, when they get it right, you're into it. When they get it wrong, they suck. <laughs>
1: yeah, fuck them. <laughs>
2: um, but I think, yeah, it's it's it sucks because for both La La Land and for The Father, I think there's a degree to which we blamed the films unintentionally, the films and the and the actor. For something shitty that <laughs> happened at the awards, st- which had nothing to do with the films,
1: yeah, for stealing some moment we thought that w- w- I deserved <laughs> to see for well, some reason. No,
2: I think I think in both instances we were feeling like films made by Black folks Can't- were usurped <laughs> by white folks.
1: It, it, yeah, it's like kind of like two years where it's like, can they just not win an award without? Some white stuff happening. Yeah.
2: So it's a shame because, like, it's not like Anthony Hopkins was like, yes, please make it look like Chadwick Boseman's going to win and then have me win. And also, I won't be there. Like, that's not what it, happened, but it's some, hard for your brain to not just be like.
1: Some dill hole program. The Oscars weird. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And then also, they were not accommodating to people who had real safety concerns and health concerns right so putting that to the side though holy shit he's amazing
1: yeah you 100 percent deserve that oscar (laughs) yeah like
2: and that's not to say chadwick boseman didn't yeah but that i think there was a part of us that that were just like well how good is he even it's just like another like oscar bait movie yeah whatever and it's like no he actually is really phenomenal in it and his performance is incredibly affecting
1: oh yeah like you you feel every ounce of emotion that he puts into this role and there are just some lines that he says in this that are delivered with just a purity and a simplicity and delivered so emotionally that it just I watched a lot of this movie through tears yeah yeah, just, and they f- hurt. Yeah, it's just a gut punch, some of, some of them. And I feel what heightens them is the performance by Olivia Coleman.
2: Oh, I think like that was... I think I was feeling very emotional thinking about my mom and how mm. she takes care of her dad and how it is coming from a place of love, but it is hard work. Oh, yeah. And like, yes, my grandpa's very very fucking with it for a 98 year old mm-hmm. but he is 98 and his body is 98 and his mind is 98 and it's pretty damn good but sometimes there are moments that like i have been in the room for that evoked some of the tougher moments between um ann and anthony mm-hmm. and it just made me have a lot of empathy for how like tough that is yeah And then again scared of like oh fuck should we have had kids that someone will take care of us (laughs) which is so selfish and we like absolutely would never do and also like there's no guarantee your children will take care of you because like I we have witnessed through someone that my grandpa was really close with how actually your kids can be devastatingly horrific to you when you go through something like what the character Anthony goes through. Yeah. So There's no guarantee that your children will take care of you.
1: This is why we have to be the cool aunts and uncles to our nibblings, and, and then they'll be like, "Oh yeah, i mean we we love these guys, so
2: <laughs> it's scary though it is scary, this idea of like being in a space where you are you need someone to take care of you and and you can't necessarily trust it like I don't know it's just it's horrifying,
1: yeah, the idea of losing kind of just like losing your autonomy and and letting go in that way is, I imagine, is so difficult to do Mm -hmm. no matter what generation you're from. You want to feel like you're in control of your body and your decisions and where you are and when things start slipping through the cracks or start not making sense, I think it'd be hard to lean on somebody, lean on somebody else.
2: Well, and yeah, I'm talking a lot about how this movie horrified me. And I, and I do think that there's a degree to which that is part of it. Um, but I think a lot of that is also me. Because this film, I think, is incredibly generous and empathetic um, and beautiful to all of the people involved. Because mm-hmm. it, it, it doesn't, it's not easy.
1: It
4: shows like, all it the sides.
2: Yeah, and it doesn't paint, it paints every moment as difficult. Yeah. And yet it, and yet there's these moments within that difficulty of incredible beauty and connection.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And love and care and um it's hard for me not to compare this to The Whale because it's a mm. stage play that's moved to the film and it's about a father and a daughter and
1: so much better.
2: Like it's just It also, to me, justifies its transfer from stage to film. And there were some really, to me, gripping and interesting and affecting uses of um, set design.
1: It was incredible.
2: And then also score. Yes. um, In ways that just wouldn't, I was like, that's impossible to do on a stage. And so we looked up afterwards, like how the stage play is done, and it does it very differently. Mm -hmm. And I think they both evoke something quite raw yeah, um, and that would be very um, visceral to experience Mm -hmm. but in different ways and there'd be a slightly different feeling with the different approaches between the two of them and I think it it makes a justification for why it's a film Um, it still does feel stage play play at times because it's very dialogue heavy but I fucking love that I know there's people who don't as much but like I'm all about the words. Like, I'm surprised I like Beau Trevi as much as I did because I'm more about the words than the images usually. Yeah. Um, and this one, the words are really good.
1: And the visuals are really good. Like, I know that I, I kept being like, oh, this changed. Oh, this thing changed. And you're like, I'm not visual enough to catch all of those things. But I like that it can be a treat for both of us mm-hmm. who you lean more words, I lean more visuals, but we still take the same amount of depth out of the film um, from both sides.
2: So Florian Zeller, who uh, wrote and directed it, and it's his stage play that it's based on, he wanted Hopkins for the role. Hmm. And he sent him the script in 2017 and waited for a reply until he got one. And he said if his the reply was no, then he was going to make it in French.
1: Oh, interesting. And he was
2: like, if, if it's not Anthony Hopkins, I'm not doing it. Because it is originally French. Right. Uh, it's a french language play Mm. um which has been done on i believe it's been done on broadway Mm -hmm. um but it was originally in french he made that movie the sun (laughs) which people are not liking
1: oh man what a bummer and i'm really curious like is homeboy gonna pull like uh the religious holy trinity on us and hey as the father the son what are we getting next holy Holy Spirit? spirit holy ghost
2: I have a great piece of IMDb trivia that I need to read to you because I don't understand it. Okay. And I'm looking for some help because 977 of 991 people found it interesting. Okay. And I just find it confusing. Okay. Sir Anthony Hopkins portrayed a character, Anthony, who had the same first name as his own. The main character's name is Anthony because the role was written for Anthony Hopkins. The director claimed it was a dream come true when he accepted This is an adaptation of an existing play, so the role cannot have been written for Anthony Hopkins. Okay. Like, it doesn't make sense, right?
3: Yeah.
1: All right.
2: Like, it says one thing, and then it says the opposite of that thing.
1: Interested? Do I find this interesting? No, confusing. Yes. Yes.
2: IMDb Trivia, get your shit together. (laughs) There was also some things I saw in the do the right thing trivia that I thought were really interesting. And then I tried to fact check them and I couldn't find any facts for them. So uh, don't always believe what you read. on am trivia.
1: <laughs> oh man. What a, what an affecting experience. This, this was such a surprise and such a great surprise. I really love this film and I would definitely rewatch it. How to make you feel.
2: It made me feel devastated and horrified at how fragile the human mind is. Yeah. You?
1: It made me feel mentally and emotionally wrecked.
2: But it does have one of the best lines I've ever heard in any piece of art ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so.
1: It's beautifully delivered by Sir Anthony Hopkins.
2: Oh Yeah, he did a really good job and I can see why he won an Oscar for it. Mm-hmm. Even if I don't always think the Oscars get it right.
1: <laughs> yes. Agreed.
2: Okay. Last mystery movie pick of the week. We were having a real like, I don't know what to do night. Yeah. And really just stuck. And then I think you said, I want to watch something easy or something like that. Um, so I picked the 2020 comedy drama horror romance. Spontaneous. Quite the genre. Connections there. <laughs> Comedy, drama, horror, romance. Um, it's directed by Brian Duffield and written by Brian Duffield, and it's based on a novel by Aaron Starmer. It stars Catherine Langford as Mara, Charlie Plummer, no relation to Christopher Plummer, as Dylan, Yvonne Orgy as Agent Rossetti, and Haley Law as Tess. Synopsis, when students in their high school begin inexplicably exploding... Literally, seniors Mara and Dylan struggle to survive in a world where each moment may be their last. Whoa! So this, um, actually, our friend Sanford had talked about it a a little while ago. and was like, I really liked it. You should watch it. And I kind of h- had it on the radar since then. And then we recently were hanging out with our friends Haley and Catherine. And Haley was like, I loved it. It was so good. And when I'm like, oh, two people who I trust said it was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I also knew it was kind of like some YA vibes Mm -hmm. which makes it a little easier so I put it on what did you think of spontaneous
1: yeah I was I was kind of pumped for this and then like learning also that it was uh it was a a 2020 movie that was coming out at a time when not a lot of stuff was coming out you know it was it kind of seemed like all the stuff that like Netflix and places and streamers like that had kind of shelved it was kind of just pumping out anything that it had on the shelf Mm -hmm. just to like get some entertainment out there during the pandemic. Um, But uh, yeah, you know, we wanted to watch a fun, I like I suggested a fun teen movie and you're like, should we just watch dirty dancing again? I'm like, no, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but this is, this was that scratched that easy, fun teen movie itch, but it had a pretty cool twist to it. That was actually really affecting. Mm Mm-hmm um i mean it has some very hammy typical teen love story stuff that didn't always work for me in the film it kind of leaned into it a bit too heavy but the the whole spontaneous combustion of it all hit extra hard
2: yeah it's um so after our friend sanford had recommended it i like just added it to my watch list on Letterboxd. And I I don't think I ever like clicked into it too much because I also kind of like to mystery movie pick my own mystery movie picks and know very little about them, which sometimes <laughs> right. works for me and sometimes doesn't. And the character of Dylan has longer hair. And from the poster, I thought it was a gay love story.
3: Oh. <laughs> so that was
2: disappointing. Whoops. And then what it was like two friends who would like like that kind of movie had both recommended it i was like oh i'm so excited for this lesbian romance (laughs) sorry it's not that um also i guess me uh forgetting that um doesn't matter your gender you can have long or short hair (laughs) but i just yeah it was just a very quick look at the cover i was like oh cool gay romance um which would have made me like the YA part of it maybe a little bit more. Mm-hmm. This is a movie that I feel like if I saw it when I was in junior high, it would have been a really like formative entry point for some of the media I like now. Mm. Like I think its central message actually has some connection to The Leftovers, everything everywhere all at once. Like... Some of these things that we really, really love, it's just put in a little bit more of a accessible mm-hmm. package. Yeah. Um, and I could see on a particular day or like in a different context or having seen it earlier in my life like that really resonating. Yeah. Um, but the spontaneous combustion parts.
1: Some like really impressive blood effects in this in this movie.
2: And like really upsetting.
1: Yeah, like it they do a really good job of pacing all of the spontaneous combustion stuff because it becomes such a focal point and then you almost it kind of makes you forget about it a little bit so that the next time it happens, it really hits Mm -hmm. heavily and they're really smart about it when we were kind of talking about it with, with our friends after we had watched it. Uh, they started kind of bringing up some things that it was critiquing or that it Mm -hmm. was leaning into. And funnily enough, while we were watching it, uh, I can totally see all those things, but I didn't feel like any of them were on the nose enough. And and maybe just because I wasn't looking for those things, I was just wanting kind of a really easy film experience. So I feel like it's it's a cool experience that you could watch it and see all those things and look into those things and see those represented here. But I also like that you could take it the way that I watched it is just kind of this enjoyable YA horror horror um, adjacent film.
2: And I also think if it's not hitting the nail right on the head that's a good thing because it's not being didactic. Yeah. Um, So that if somebody particularly um, you know there uh, we had some conversations about this um, commenting on gun violence in schools in the United States which I hadn't thought about when we were watching and then as soon as that was said I was like oh yeah mm-hmm. totally that like if somebody really liked this movie and hadn't thought about it that way it'd be a really great conversation starter mm-hmm. for that Um without being so obvious that it would turn people away who need to have those conversations yeah Um, this is also totally a movie I could see us wanting to like watch with our 11-year-old nibbling is like a let's Mm -hmm. continue to push horror, (laughs) but in accessible ways. And I do think the ideas about what it means to be a human in this world are quite thoughtful in it. Yes. And like really up our alley. And it has some really thoughtful stuff about grief and how you deal with grief. Mm -hmm. Although like sometimes it leans a little heavily into like the thought. 13 reasons why of it all it gets a
1: little bit heavy-handed netflix movie-y about it's not a netflix movie but it feels that way sometimes
2: but that's why i could like totally see it as like a good conversation starter with like some of the younger people in our lives when they're ready to watch it
1: it's such an interesting thing like being an aunt and an uncle and trying i feel like you and i we we want our niblings to get into horror movies because we love them so much, and it's such a fun thing to share those movies with with other people. And we would love to bring them into that love with us. And we're kind of navigating finding these gateway movies to bring them into that. But thinking back to when I was young, m- like my aunt and uncle were just like, "Oh, you'll like The Evil Dead. Oh, you'll oh, you'll yeah. like Seven. You'll like like they're just showing I me like Texas straight up Chainsaw horror massacre. Yeah."
2: Um, I, I saw the ring and it scared the crap out of me uh in theater. yeah, I was watching like Carrie. I had already seen Carrie,
1: and like I'm watching like jaws when I'm like three yeah. to five years old, like just getting dropped right into it. Like it's like, is that the tactic? I feel like that's really extreme,
2: well, but we yeah, but we got in trouble for showing Edward's scissor hands to our one nibbling when so now we're just we tread lightly.
1: Yeah, gotta be gotta be real careful because you don't you don't want to I don't want to overwhelm them with an experience and then they just write off horror movies forever. Yeah, um but yeah, our our uh, our second youngest nibbling we we see that there's more threads than any of our other nibblings that she might like horror movies.
2: Yeah, we are ready for it, and
1: uh, we really want to nourish that. <laughs>
2: um, before we wrap up this one. Have to mention the soundtrack.
1: Uh, yeah, what the hell? It slaps.
2: Yeah, it's called Wolf Parade. Yeah, I'll believe in anything.
1: Which is one of our songs.
2: Yeah, we freaking love it. I think it's one of the most beautiful love songs I've ever written. Um, and there's a Julian Baker in there, one of my all time crushes.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like they were like back to back or pretty close too. So and it's we're like, like,
2: what the even? It's like
1: slapper. Great music. Slapper.
2: Some really scary moments, some thoughtful commentary on what it means to be a human and deal with grief,
1: yeah, there's some sweet moments in there too like the
2: the the romance is like in terms of if I'm considering you know the younger people in my life, both my students and our nibblings and our friends' kids and stuff like that. I think the central romance, while not gay, so disappointing <laughs> um actually is a really good representation of what I would hope would be the kinds of relationships they would get into before they're adults. Yeah. Um and I and I love having media that could model like a honest, communicative, vulnerable relationship. Yeah. Um and I also thought the friendship was really beautifully depicted. Yeah. Like the central friendship between Tess and Mara, I thought was really good.
1: Yeah. And they're you know i didn't mean to write it off by calling any of those elements hammy like there are hammy elements but they're very beautifully thought out relationships and in a movie like this it also ups the stakes when anybody at any moment could spontaneously combust
2: you also um young adult fiction is your favorite genre of fiction so
1: this is true you ya books i've just fully embraced it in my adulthood that ya books are my fucking jam i can't tell you why i just love those stories
2: sometimes they're a little bit more honest like like even thinking of this film like it's not trying to it's not at the end you have to be like okay did I understand it it's let it's letting you know yeah and there's a beauty in the honesty of that
1: I think you nailed it Larry coming up clutch with the words again (laughs) really good
2: all right what uh, stop it stop (laughs) it what do you think I don't know oh my goodness I'm blushing I'm (laughs) blushing how does spontaneous make you feel
1: pleasantly and gratefully surprised by the good time I had with this one. I, re- I recommend it. Especially if you're one of those people that it's kind of like horror is not my thing or I can't do scary or I can't do suspenseful stuff. This is like that. It's like that light. Yeah. Like diet that. Yeah. How about you?
2: It made me really grateful for genre blending movies. Like I think it's...
1: Mm.
2: Yeah, that like... Romance isn't totally my favorite genre, although we've watched a lot of romance or rom- romance. as one of the genres lately. You
1: say romance,
2: romance, <laughs> <laughs> romancing the stone. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I liked that blend of horror and romance, and I think it's, I think it's cool when you have those like multi-genre movies. I agree. Okay, I'm really excited to talk about this.
1: Oh man, we ended the week with a banger uh, and a great experience. We watched, for us, rewatched the adventure comedy family film from 2014, Paddington. It was directed by Paul King. The screen story was written by him as well as Hamish McCall. And uh, Paddington Bear was created by Bond, Michael Bond.
2: I was like, why didn't you say his first name? Got it, got it.
1: i do it for the bit. Um, so there's Hugh Bonneville as Henry, Sally Hawkins.
2: I really like Sally Hawkins. Yeah, me too.
1: <laughs> as Mary. Julie Walters as Mrs. Bird. Jim Broadbent as Mr. Gruber. Uh, Michael Gambon as Uncle Pastuzo. Uh, Imelda Saunton as Aunt Lucy. And the absolutely wonderful Ben Wishaw as Paddington.
2: Don't forget Nicole Kidman as Millicent.
1: Oh, yeah. Goodness. This is another freaking stacked cast.
2: <laughs> and uh, Nandor from <laughs> What We Do in the Shadows. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in a cameo, it was a security card.
1: So, so good. Uh, synopsis. A young Peruvian bear travels to London in search of a home. Finding himself lost and alone at Paddington Station, he meets the kindly Brown family who offered a, who offer a temporary haven. This was a very special viewing for us. What did you think of Paddington? And tell us about the special viewing. <laughs> like, I wasn't there.
2: <laughs> you were there, although... It started earlier for me because you had to go find parking. Um, (laughs) We got to take our second youngest nibbling, recently turned four years old, to her first movie theater movie ever. Mm -hmm. And I'm really grateful that um, her parents let us do that.
1: Yeah. And we got to take her to... uh... Metro Cinema of all places, our our favorite, our favorite theater our favorite ever. Theater,
2: so it was really, really, really cool. Her dad came with us, so our brother in law came with us. Um, she also had never eaten popcorn before.
1: Wild, did not know that.
2: Yeah, and she loved it. She ate popcorn like you eat popcorn.
1: Yeah, um,
2: she was just super, super, super into it, and it was just it was just really cool to get to take her to her first movie ever, and um. Because Metro Cinema does these real family cinema films where kids under twelve can go, there's a little bit less pressure for like the kids to be like perfect during them, Mm -hmm. because there's an understanding that this is lots of kids are going to be here, so it might be a little bit noisier, and that's okay. But she was a friggin' champion.
1: Yeah. Her eyes were locked on the screen for so much of the movie, and then even when she started getting a little bit restless and started asking her dad questions, it they were all questions pertaining to the movie
2: and she was always whispering,
1: yeah, she was very respectful
2: she's a very very respectful kid um one of my favorite parts was she I suggested that we take her to this because her parents call her Remington Paddington bear
0: <laughs> yes
2: and but she has no other connection to Paddington Bear (laughs) Um, and so when we were sitting down I said hey do you like bears no and then I said do you think you might like bears by the time the movie's done maybe (laughs) love that attitude (laughs) it was really really great Um, yeah it was really awesome and like we knew this was a good movie
1: yeah this is our third time seeing it
2: that is not true Explain. That's our second time seeing we
1: it. We saw it in the theater. No, really. When it came out, yeah.
2: I have no memory of that.
1: Oh, that's okay. I, I have
2: don't... no memory of that. I was there. What?
1: Yeah, we saw it in the theater when it first came out.
2: But then didn't see the second one?
1: No. I think we just wrote it off for some reason, but we both really liked the first one. And then we rewatched it like a year ago, a couple years ago, just during the pandemic. And we loved it even more. And then on this 3rd rewatch. I loved it even more.
2: Oh, this is why I'm glad I have Letterbox now, because my brain is going, and I have literally no memory of seeing it. I thought that when we rented it from the library, we rented both of them because we hadn't seen either of them, but I believe you, I just, I don't remember.
1: It was, yeah, it was our, we've only seen the second one once.
2: Eh, my but, brain is mushing already.
1: That's okay. I'm here to de-mush. <laughs>
2: <laughs> But we But uh, we do really like this movie. We think it's really sweet.
1: It is a lovely, lovely movie. It is a
2: lovely, lovely movie.
1: And I mean, despite the rustling and chatter of the other kids in the theater and me wanting to catch glimpses of our niece enjoying the movie, I watched many of these scenes through tears in my eyes. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's,
2: we were kind of um, conflating the two movies a little bit. Yeah, we like, like, does this
1: happen? Does this happen?
2: Which I think also is a sign that like there's just a really beautiful through line between the two films. Yeah. And that. The second one doesn't just feel like a sequel for sequel's sake. Something that's interesting about this is Paddington is apparently so important in Britain, mm-hmm. and like I don't, I I know growing up I knew of Paddington Bear and I knew what he looked like, but I didn't have a connection with him. Did you?
1: Not really. No,
2: just like a corduroy bear or something that I liked.
1: All right. I-
2: <laughs> Knock is, that his, off to is bear. that his name i think so yeah corduroy bear i don't know <laughs> i could be totally making that <laughs> up um but i was reading when i was reading up on this movie a lot of the people involved in it with were afraid of like doing a disservice to the character
1: not doing it justice yeah so like
2: you know some of the things that i found out were um that uh hugh bonneville who plays like the dad was nervous about taking on the part because he considers Paddington a, quote, part of the DNA of the UK. And he said he didn't want his childhood messed with. <laughs> um, but then he read the script and he said as he was reading it, he was, quote, laughing out loud and reminded of all the charming innocence and warmth that Bond puts on the page. And he felt like it, it wouldn't mess with his childhood. Um, Nicole Kidman, I guess, was obsessed with Paddington as a kid and her greatest wish as a child was that Paddington would live in her house. And so this was, she said, the closest she'd ever get to that. So she wanted to do it. Um, and then this, I thought, was the sweetest and saddest thing. So Michael Bond, who created the character of Paddington for, I believe, books, no. illustrated children's books, he said that before the film was re- released, he quote had a certain amount of trepidation. I was worrying, I, I was worrying, I'd be lying awake thinking I've let Paddington down.
3: Oh, my God. <laughs>
2: and then he said, uh, letting other people take control of your character is like letting your child go off into somebody else's car. You hope for the best, but you brace yourself for the worst. But in the end, he was um really proud of it. And I guess that he they were able to get him to sign off after he saw half a minute of test footage. Oh, wow. And his daughter, who obviously really loves the character as well, her name's Karen Jankel, after she saw the first screening, she said, quote, for me, it was the bringing to life of the bear that was so real, and I think they got it absolutely right.
1: Yeah, like I feel like I, I feel like it could potentially be easy for people to write this off because of the CGI Paddington Bear of it all. Oh my god, it works though. It, it's it could not be the thought furthest from my mind watching this movie because there's so much life through Ben Wishaw's performance and then all of the surrounding performances around Paddington that make it so lovely and so heartfelt and emotional.
2: So this is the other interesting thing. Originally Colin Firth was the voice of Paddington. And then Colin Firth and Paul King mutually agreed he wasn't the right choice after he was already he had already done work for it.
1: Oh, he'd already like recorded. I don't stuff? think I don't
2: think all of it, but he'd been like on set to like help the actors um know what Paddington would sound like and that kind of thing. Mm. And I, I do find this very cute um Paul King said they decided Colin Firth wasn't the right voice because quote it slowly became clear that Paddington does not have the voice of a very handsome older man <laughs>
1: <laughs> well and I mean Ben Wishaw is not a boy but he has oh it's just he, this he captures that yeah that like young naive but loving charm that paddington has
2: it's so it's so lovely and i again not being from britain and not like loving the character of paddington there was nothing at stake for us when we saw this the first time Mm -hmm. but the story of how michael bond created paddington is also incredibly sweet i guess that he was at paddington station he was at a store near paddington station on christmas eve in 1956 and he saw a teddy bear all alone on a shelf And it made him come up with this story.
3: (laughs) Oh, my God. And
2: he, um, he said he was, like, inspired by that image that he saw. And then he had, like, recently been watching old newsreel footage of children being evacuated from London during World War II. And they were, like, all in these train cars with labels on their necks and, like, these little small suitcases with their possessions in them. And he kind of put those two images together and created the character of Paddington Bear.
1: You make me cry.
2: I know. It's beautiful. And then to have, like, all of these people who so clearly wanted to do right by that character that like it sounds like everyone involved loved that character. And it wasn't just like, oh, let's take this IP and make some money. Mm -hmm. It was we are going to make a film that captures that original spirit from which this character was created and we are gonna make sure that the person who created this character who still loves this character Mm -hmm. feels like we are just bringing this character to more people.
1: That's so beautiful. I love that. And you you can you feel that in this story. You feel that emotional weight and like where that's coming from. And then this also just has so many commentaries about people in the world and how we accept them or reject them and how Especially children. Yeah. Yeah. And just again, it, it all kind of comes back to kindness.
2: Well, and this I mean at its core these movies, both the first and the second, but we're just talking about the first year, they're about found family. And I'm such a freaking sucker for found family. Like, whether it's in like Pose, like this mm-hmm. like TV show about queer outcasts finding family with each other, um, whether it's like any Koreta film, <laughs> like yeah. Broker Shoplifters, um, in this like highly dramatic like, serious tone or something like this, like, it will get me every time. There's a line about that, about, like, what family is that, like, just a lump immediately goes into my throat when it's said because I'm just mm-hmm. like, frick, like, ah, it's so beautiful. And then I think, you know, watching our four-year-old niece watch this, I'm like, this is the kind of message that I want her to get from the media. Her parents are very um, careful about what media she engages with. And I'm like, this is the kind of media that, like, She also really likes Honey, I Shrunk the Kids Right Now. Uh, I asked her what her favorite part of that is, and she says, when the kids get shrunk. (laughs) Yep. Same. And then I said, what about when they get almost swept up with a broom? And she was like, yeah. (laughs) I love
1: that.
2: She really liked that. Um, I'd like you to talk about one of the parts of the film, watching her watch it. That was really awesome.
1: Something really unique that we really love about our niece that I've never experienced with any other child is that she has an obsession with security cameras. She loves them. And it's, it kind of, it spawned from her watching toy story three, which has a monkey who is essentially a nanny cam who has cameras in his eyes. And since seeing that, she loves that at one point, I guess her, her teacher from school (laughs) called or was speaking to her mom. So our, your sister, my sister-in-law, and I was like, "Hey, what is with what's with uh, Remy's obsession with security cameras?" Because I guess that at one point uh, our niece looked into the eyes of another student, like really deep into their eyes, and I was like, "What did she say?"
2: Your eyes look like security <laughs> cameras, but she like it started as a bit of a fear. Like she would watch that scene in Toy Story and she would scream. Yeah. Like when the cuz the monkey watches a bank of security cameras too and then there's like shots of the actual camera in the daycare. Yeah. Um and it turned from this like fear into this like obsession.
1: Yeah, like she she would always ask us like do you have how many security cameras do you have in your house? And it, one time the way we got it introduced to it was I think she was like, "So, are you scared of security cameras?
2: Yeah, but I was like, <laughs> and I said to her, No, are you scared of security cameras? And she said, No. And I said, But it sounds like you are. And she said, No. No. Don't come for me. But now, if you ask her, Do you like security cameras? Love them. Yeah. So, unbeknownst to us,
1: um, Paddington has some security gam- camera bits in it. And uh, when we got, <laughs> once it started delving deep into security camera scenes, look over at our niece. And she has her hands up in fists and she's just shaking them with excitement.
2: She's just vibrating. And then she turned to me and she goes, did you see security cameras?
1: (laughs) So what a perfect first film to take her to in the movie theater. Like big screen
2: security cameras. Like what a win. Although her, um, when the movie was done, we said, what was your favorite part? And she's what said when Paddington used the vacuums. Also a great bit. Um, Not to spoil anything, but if you've seen the film, you know what that part is.
1: Um, also, just want to just uh, toot our own horns as aunt and uncles who nailed a present for her birthday this year. Yeah. Uh, our buddy Ashley who has been on the show. We <laughs> commissioned her to because, okay, so what we wanted to do is we wanted to get our niece a stuffed animal, stuffed version of a security camera, which doesn't exist. Nope. Doesn't this, exist. Because who would want that? <laughs> <laughs> Um, we tried googling it, everything that we came to was just nanny cams essentially. So, we got our buddy Ashley to make a custom security camera stuffy. Maybe we'll put a picture of it on our social media, uh, this week because, um, way it turned out was incredible. Yeah, it's awesome. And we gave it to our niece, lost her mind.
2: Oh, yeah, she opened the box and she just shouted, It's a security camera, (laughs) like she knew what it was immediately
1: and like everybody in the family was like oh my god this is amazing yeah. um ashley nailed it it's such a great great gift and from what we've been hearing our niece wants to put it up in different places she, she really, wants to
2: look for harry and marv yeah
1: she loves home alone so she's like she wants to put it up to keep an eye up for harry and marv <laughs> coming to her house
2: well when i ask her what do you like about security cameras she says they watch bad people So this is why I think she's going to love horror movies because also in Paddington, the scene that had her most glued to the screen was like this actually quite upsetting scene of Nicole Kidman's character like breaking into their house to steal Paddington and kill him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And she was just like hand in the air, so still, eyes locked to the screen, not moving. Yeah. Um, During that whole sequence and I'm like this kid is going to love movies. She's going to love going to the theater and I think she's going to like horror movies. So I think we've got a lock on who we can be cool aunt and uncle for. I hope I'm I'm really I hope I hope I hope.
1: Yeah. I hope so too. It was it was so lovely.
2: It was so special. I'm just yeah. We also got to take our um, oldest nibbling to her first movie in the movie theater Mm -hmm. when she was I think around the same age. We took her to Inside Out. Yeah. That one didn't quite, and we also went with her and her dad, who is our brother-in-law. Yeah. Um, but that one, I think, is not as riveting for a four-year-old as Paddington is. Yeah. Um. So, just very special that we've gotten to to have those experiences.
1: Yeah, it's 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 very sweet because, uh, I guess, in everyone's eyes, movies are kind of our love language. <laughs> so. I think people
2: know that we like movies I think they're not when I tell my, my students they're like what did you do this week and I said oh I saw a movie and they go shocker Yeah,
1: <laughs> womp, womp.
2: Ch- change the record
1: <laughs> Um, this movie is also hilarious it's my exact type of humor that I love
2: it's so funny it's like sweet and charming and funny and also like the like it's clever
1: yeah real smart
2: and it's got interesting camera work
1: mm-hmm
2: it's 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 really good.
1: I mean, if you haven't seen it, check it out. And if you love it, prepare yourself for Paddington Two because it comes even harder.
2: It's amazing, and Metro Cinema is playing Paddington Two next weekend. So yeah. they are smart. I have I have one last piece of like really fascinating trivia. Um, actually, two. One is in making this movie, uh, Paul King, while he was making it, would just go see children's movies in the theaters to like observe what kids actually thought was funny. Smart. Very smart but also the president of the Ukraine Volodymyr Zelensky current president of the Ukraine who is doing an impossible job right now yeah um with as much grace as he can which is awful and difficult I, he I just
1: want to say I know he's dealing with a lot and he is doing it with a lot of grace and it's it's incredible What I something I love about it a lot is that he's meeting with a lot of world leaders. He came to the States recently, so he's meeting with like Joe Biden and stuff like that. But like he's meeting with all of these politicians that are wearing suits, and homeboy is just wearing like a nice crew neck.
2: Yeah, so hear this. He dubs the voice of Paddington in the Ukrainian version of the film.
1: Oh man, so he's a hero for everybody. Yeah.
2: And I guess that he like this kind of wasn't necessarily well known until everything with the war kind of hit the public consciousness around the world. Um, and so Hugh Bonneville who plays Mr. Brown, he like publicly thanked him for, for doing the voice of, uh, Paddington in the Ukraine. And I was just like, that's ju- that's just wild and amazing. Yeah. So kind wow. of, yeah, kind of a, just absolutely seems like, how could that be the case? <laughs> like,
1: this movie is just a vehicle for loveliness.:
2: Yeah, it's just it is kindness in a film. Kindness on film. So such a such a, an amazing experience to get to take someone that we love and care for to their first movie ever and see her eat popcorn for the first time ever. Oh,
1: man. That's special.:
2: It was just so cool. She did at the end because her and her dad go on adventures all the time, so they've walked through Cineplexes. And she said, like, she wanted to go exploring. And then when we got to the front of the theater, she goes, kind of a small theater. <laughs> yeah.
1: Metro is just a single single cinema theater. And <laughs> it's, it's, there's not a lot to it. <laughs> but I
2: told her that's what makes it special because it's yeah. only one movie at a time and everyone who's in there is watching the same movie. Yes. And she's, she's just like this. I freaking love that kid so much. She was just like, yeah. <laughs> and I asked her if she'd go to a movie with us again. And she said, yes. So.
1: Um. yeah this is this is so great I loved it even more on this, on this viewing how did it make you feel?
2: made me feel warmly comforted yeah you?
1: it made me so grateful for stories this good that kids get to grow up with I, I just love that this is the first experience that our niece has, in the theater, has had in the theater and it's such a good movie to start it up to start off her theater going journey with agreed okay that'll do it for the smackeroonies let's talk about the dads who's your bad dad nominee of the week
2: so fitting for the actor who plays him i picked max wren from videodrome
1: yeah he is uh real pee pee poo poo
2: so i'm guessing you didn't pick max wren
1: i didn't but tell Um, me why you picked him
2: I just find him to be very self-oriented, like initially chasing Videodrome despite like the potential danger it poses that he, I mean, it poses more dangers than he realizes, but like what he knows it could do to like the psyches of people and like what he's encouraging and promoting. He doesn't care because he just wants to make money for his company. Oh yeah. But then even after that, it's just about his own desires.
3: Oh, yeah.
0: Like, fuck
2: the consequences, it's what he wants. Um, and even when there's potential danger to other people, he seems to only care so much as it affects that he'll lose a, a like, sexual partner. Or he'll, right? Like, it's not mm-hmm. like, it doesn't seem like care for other people. Um, and that's gross.
1: Yeah. He is really gross. And selfish is the... A it's be- the
2: Mac daddy of bad daddies.
1: Yeah, it's very true. Um, yeah, I kind of, I kind of struggled with this one a little bit. I struggled with both, like just narrowing it down to one. But I went with um Sal from Do the Right Thing.
2: I was thinking about him. So yeah.
1: the reason I went with him because I I think that your pick is very much a good choice. Like Max is despicable. I picked Sal because he ha I feel like he has good intentions, but he has prejudices that prohibit him from truly growing mm. and gaining more empathy and or understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he also is stubborn mm-hmm. and set in his ways. And then at the, you know, at kind of the big, the, the bigger moments of the film, frustration is his downfall. Mm-hmm. Like all of those things feed into his frustration and it it doesn't, it doesn't go to a good place.
2: And even considering like we see through Sal like generational prejudice yeah. and like how he interacts with his kids around that, um, I considered him. Mm-hmm. So while I think they're both pee-pee-poo-poo dads, um, I can be on board with naming Sal.
1: There's just like this much more heartbreaking complexity to sal being a bad dad yeah that's like it is like it's it is sad and it's frustrating and you just wish that you wish you could just kind of make him see the the other side of things a little bit and just want to grow you just want to shake him Mm
0: -hmm.
1: okay so sal no
0: no from
1: do the right thing
2: no sounded like we said don't do the right thing
1: Don't be our dad.
2: Don't be our dad.
1: Um I am still struggling <laughs> with Rad Dad of the Week, and I'm kind of between two, but they both kind of have the same argument. So I'm gonna say both. Okay. And we can pick one, or we could roll with both if we were to if we both agree on this side. But I picked Anne from The Father and Mary from Paddington. Okay. Um, and I said because I feel like they're both kind and caring. I also feel like they're both doing their best mm-hmm. in their, in their respective lives. And a big challenge for them in each of their films is navigating the men in their lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, which is difficult for both of them on different levels, but they are both de- determined to do so for whatever, for the betterment of their own intentions or what is right for each of their characters. And just fundamentally they're good people that are there for other people. And I think that makes them rad dads. Um, Yeah, I struggle to narrow it down to exactly one. There was one other person I was considering too, and maybe you've picked that person, unless it's one of those people.
2: I picked Mary. Okay. Yeah. Um, I picked Mary because she just sees the best in people, even the tricky people, Mm. like her husband. Yeah. Um, And she's a dreamer, but she's not unrealistic. Yes. Like there's sometimes when you're a dreamer to the point of it being harmful and that's not her. Like she still takes care of her family. She still does the practical things, but she does it with a sense of wonder. Mm-hmm. Um, She's so warm and she is so loving and trusting, but not to a fault. Mm-hmm. I don't know. She's just like, how can you not fall in love with her and want her to be your mom? Yeah, she's, like,
1: just, she's just like the kindness rock star.
2: She is the kindness rock star.
1: Yeah. The other character I was thinking of potentially picking was Damir from do the right oh, thing. Oh
2: yeah. He's the one who says do the right thing.
1: Yeah. So many, so many good potentials, but I, I, I do like Mary. Uh, there's just again, and Sally Hawkins just what a, what a great performance! She just rocks it, and and it made me want to revisit Shape of Water. Oh my goodness,
2: it did for me too. And I didn't really like Shape of Water. Yeah, which did win Best Picture, right? Yeah. Um,
1: I'd like to give it another. chance. I didn't
2: dislike Shape of Water, but I like thought I would like it more than I would.
1: Maybe a second viewing. Yeah, give me a chance. Okay, so are we? We're gonna agree. We're in on, on Mary. Mary. Okay, so Mary from Paddington. Be, Be our, our dad. dad. Okay, we've talked about this already, but Brad Rack of the Week would be to share your love of movies and or going to the theater with the nibblings or little nuggets in your life. We shared how wonderful of an experience it was for us um, recently with our niece and then in the past with our, our other niece. And we, we love being able to talk about, obviously, movies. Um, but we love sharing that with of these little nuggets coming up in our lives so if you have little nuggets in your life like they they will see and share in the excitement and the experience that you bring to the table with them and when you take them to the theaters and they get to experience so many good and bad stories in the movies that they watch and have those complicated emotions around them and they get to see them as they grow up into big nuggets so it's a it's a really cool thing so if you have some of those people in your lives that you can share this with.
2: Take them to the movies.
1: Yeah. And if they haven't had popcorn, get them some popcorn. <laughs> yeah, get them some popcorn. Popcorn's pirata. awesome. <laughs> Popcorn's so good. It's my favorite snack. <laughs> um. So yeah, that's the Rad Rack. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. You can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. You can get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts Usernames are names are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you could share us with the rad people in your life. Drop us a rating, follow or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these big nuggets this week. So until next time.
2: I'm Kylie and my dad's dead.
1: I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad.